was uh, when my dad would come home for work on Saturday, what he would do to relax is he would turn on the television and he would put wrestling on. He would put wrestling on. And, 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 and I haven't really watched wrestling since then, but, but in those days there might, be, there might be some people that you're familiar with. Um, my dad's favorite, I think, was Rowdy Roddy Piper. Anybody ever hear of him? Um, he, he liked them because he wore a kilt and my dad's scotch. So, um, Jimmy Superfly Snooka, remember him? Anybody? Okay. <laughs> um, there was Hulk Hogan. There was George the Animal Steel. You know, by the way, George the Animal Steel was a Christian. Passed away in 2017. And, um, and, and actually, Middleborough had a, had a wrestler. I found this out after the first service. Rob Fuller. I guess he was the lumberjack. Anybody know Rob the lumberjack Fuller? Okay. Some of you probably know him personally. Yeah, okay. Um, well, I remember watching that, and we would watch these guys who were the great wrestlers. And, and uh, we knew it was all scripted and everything. But, but there, were, there would always be the, the, the kind of the famous, the popular one. And then they would throw in the ring with him a kind of a sacrificial lamb, right? Somebody that it looked like they obviously picked up off the street and threw in the ring, and that guy's job was to lose, but he would always have one flourish. There'd be one point in time within the match where he would have a chance. He would have the, have the, the guy who was the famous one down, but then the other one would come back and win almost all the time, almost every time. Well, um, as we're looking at the story together, we're looking at the story of, of a man named Job, and he's locked in a wrestling match. His wrestling partner is invisible. Um, Job, in the midst of this, was fighting for his life. We were, were reminded of the words in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says this. It says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are locked in a, an incredible uh, wrestling match with Satan. Satan and his forces, that's what Job was dealing with in this situation. But Job didn't realize that he was locked in this kind of wrestling match. In fact, Job, prior to all of these events, had lived a, an amazing life. It seemed like a perfect life. And Satan went to God and he challenged him. And he said, you know, the only reason why Job loves you or professes to love you is because of all the benefits that he gets from you. And if you take all of those things away, then he will curse you to your face. And so the Lord called Satan's bluff, and that's exactly what happened. Job lost his wealth, he lost his servants, he lost his children, he lost his health. Yet, in spite of all the, these things, he did not curse God to his face. And so, some visible wrestling partners were then introduced into his life. And one was, uh, and three of them were his friends, and these three friends had certain uh, philosophical viewpoints on Job's suffering, and they were all sure that the reason why Job was suffering was because he had done something so terrible that this was the rightful punishment for the things that he had done. Now, those of us who have been reading the book see the, the, the curtain of the book pulled back, and we know that that's not true. God says that Job is not suffering 
in a way that is commensurate with the things that he has done. But these people are convinced of it. And as we've discussed before, all three of these friends represent different wisdom traditions in the ancient world. And Job wrestles them one at a time, each of them, and defeats them. Another wrestling partner that Job has is his wife. You might remember that when it appeared that Job was terminally ill, his wife said to Job, she, she joined ranks with Satan. She said, Job, curse God and die. Now, sometimes we read that and we read about Job's wife and we think that she was um, a person who was pure evil. But the, the reality is, is, is we have to remember that it wasn't just Job who lost his children. She lost her 10 children. It wasn't just Job who lost everything that he had. It was his wife also who lost everything that she had. It wasn't just Job who became a scourge of his community. She, as his wife, would have joined him in that. It wasn't just Job going through this terrible time where he was dealing with awful boils erupting over his body and terrible sores that he would sit in the ashes and scrape off with pottery. It, just, it wasn't just him going through that. She was going through that with him. And when she saw him emaciated, appearing to be on his, on his, on his last leg, she said to him, curse God and die. Yet in spite of all of that, he refused to do it. He refused to curse God and die. And he vanquished all of those wrestling partners. Now there was one other wrestler, wrestling partner that was introduced into the story. It was a man named Elihu. And one of the things as we have noticed Job in his debates with his debating partners is that the more that he has taken them on, the more confident he has grown in his sense of righteousness, his per personal sense of righteousness. He believes that he's in the right and that God's in the wrong because of the things that he's going through. And so he calls on God to come and join him in court. He actually, Job actually sues God. Uh, and in the last section where Job speaks in chapter 31, this is how, this is how cocky Job became. Notice this in, in uh, chapter 31, verses 35 to 37. He said, he said this, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. He goes on. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Can you see a bit of cockiness in Job at this point? Every time he's dealing with one of his opponents, every time he vanquishes his opponents, he comes to a greater and greater realization that there are no answers out there for his problems and that the only one who could possibly be responsible is the Lord and the Lord has treated him unjustly. He wants to see him in court and he is now saying, like a prince, I would approach him. That's, that's a little shocking, isn't it? Um, there's, a, there's a lot of mixed opinion, as we talked about last time, about this next figure that Job was to wrestle. His name was Elihu. A lot of people think of him as, as maybe a, a heroic figure in the book. But if there's any notion that should dispel that from our minds, it's this. Job was positive that God would not show up to any lawsuit that Job 
had brought against God. Notice chapter 35, verses 13 and 14. He says, this is what Elihu says. And Elihu, we can see, is not, the, not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. He says, surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say that you do not see him, that, that the case is before him, and that you are waiting for him. Surely God does not hear, uh, and then, is that it right there? We got it. Okay. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. I'll read verse 14 again. How much less when you say that you do not see him, that the case is before him, and that you are waiting for him. Now, as you've noticed throughout the book, you have these speeches going back and forth. One speaks, the other replies. And uh, I just have this feeling, and there's no way that I can know for sure if I'm correct about this, but, but I believe that um, Job was just about ready to go Hulk Hogan on Elihu right at that moment. Um, he was ready to make mincemeat of Elihu and his arguments about his particular situation, but instead something else happens before Job speaks. Uh, a wrestling partner like no other shows up. There was a whirlwind, we notice in 38, verse 1. I remember um, the day, it was Wednesday, March 28, 1984. It was a calm evening. My friends in the neighborhood, we were all playing in my yard. It was a beautiful night. We were throwing the ball around. And we looked into the sky that evening, and the, and the sky had this very eerie, greenish look about it. Well, a couple of hours later, we heard that there was a storm coming. A couple of hours later, we were all in our homes. And by 8.15 that night, 24 tornadoes ripped through a three-county area in which we lived. Seven of those tornadoes were F4s, five were F3s, and from that night, from the wreckage and devastation of night, that night, there were 57 deaths, and there were 1,248 injuries. I don't think I've ever lived through an event like that before, storm like that before. And driving around the next day and looking at the, the, the neighborhoods that were wrecked, looking at town centers in, in our county that were destroyed. Uh, those are memories that will stay with me for a lifetime. Now imagine what Job was thinking when he sees this whirlwind. The last time in the book of Job we had a great wind, it was in chapter 1, verse 19. You remember what that was? That was a, a great wind that ripped across the plain and hit the home that his children were in, and all ten of them were killed. You can imagine the, the awe that this, this moment would have evoked as he saw this whirlwind. And then from out of the whirlwind, he hears these words, Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Verse 2 of chapter 38. The word there for darkened counsel refers to false assumptions that Job was making, which was leading him to wrong conclusions about God. False assumptions are dangerous. False assumption is, 
especially when we come to God, are particularly dangerous because they can lead us to wrong conclusions about who he is. And so, um, as far as Job is concerned, he's angry. And uh, he's, he's now speaking in a, in a very uh, arrogant way. And probably part of the reason why is because he didn't think he'd ever get a trial. But then God says in 38.3, he says, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Now, this imagery that we have here from, from uh, the Lord as he speaks to him, when he says, dress for action like a man, that imagery, those, that vocabulary is from, you guessed it, the world of wrestling. The world of wrestling. The Lord is now, now challenging Job to a wrestling match. And uh, God has now decided to give Job what he's been demanding all along in the book. And so um, Job, at its core, has been questioning the way that God has decided to run the world. He thinks that God is running the world in an unjust way. Maybe at this point he even thinks that if he had the opportunity to run the world, he'd run it better. And so the Lord has a series of questions for him. And, um, and they're quite enlightening. And, and actually, some of them are pretty, pretty funny, uh, some of the questions that the Lord has for him. And so we notice here, God offers proof of his wisdom from the earth, the heavens, and the animal kingdom. And so God goes on, and, and I've kind of categorized the questions in, in 15 different, different questions. So we're going we're gonna, to, he, he says to Job, he says, Job, when the earth was splendidly fashioned together, what role did you play in it? Job, you don't like the way that I run the world? Well, then, then tell me, what role did you take in forming it? Would you have any uh, ability to do so when you look at the world and its majesty and its glory and wonder? Surely you've seen that, Job. What part did you play in that? Or, um, or Job, when it was time to draw the boundaries of the sea, where were you? Now, we have to remember that for the Jewish people, they were land lovers. The sea was a fearsome, dreaded place. They weren't like a lot of New Englanders who can't think of anything better to get in a boat and go out into the water where you can't see the shoreline. No, they, they stayed away from the they stayed away from the water. They looked at it as a fearsome place. And, and God says, you know, Job, when it was time to draw the boundaries of the sea, to, to stop it in its place so that you could thrive and live, where were you? What part did you play in that? You're questioning the way that I've created the world? Well, well, what part did you play in, in what I've done here? Or, Job, what do you know of the planetary rotations which make day and night? And by the way, I'm, I'm kind of summarizing. The Lord puts it in poetic language, but I'm, I'm trying to put it more in concrete language. But, but, Job, what do you know of the planetary rotations which make day and night? Can you explain that, Job? Now, there are a lot of people today who might be able to explain much of this. But you have to remember, in the ancient world, Job wouldn't have had any understanding of this. And, and truly, um, there's no subject that we can know as human beings exhaustively, even if we can answer a lot of these questions. Or, or we, have, we have another one. Uh, Job, what experience do you have in walking the breath of the sea or the land? 
He he asked Job, you know, have you ever been to the deepest recesses of the sea, the deepest recesses of the ocean? Even now, most of that is, especially in these these deep crevices in the ocean, they're they're relatively unexplored, relatively unknown, even in our day, 3,500 years later. And God is saying to him, you know, Job, I I know it all. Job, I've, I've walked the breadth of the earth. How about you? Have you done anything like that? Yet you would question the way that I run the world? Um, Job, what are the conditions that produce snow, hail, or the scorching east wind? Job, do you understand meteorology? Do you you know how all of this comes together? Are you an expert on this? Job, can you explain why rain falls in the desert where people don't live? Why does God provide water in areas of the world where people don't even live or can't benefit from that? Why Why does grass sprout up in those kinds of places? says, Job, can you explain, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Job, uh, where does precipitation and frost originate and how does ice form over the oceans? This is, a, this is really a miracle that he's speaking about here, a miracle, an amazing miracle. You know that, that water is one of the only substances that when it's cooled into a solid state, it floats on its liquid form. Normally, when something is cooled into a solid state, it becomes more dense and it falls. But water, water miraculously stays, uh, when, it, when it freezes, it freezes to ice, it floats, and it stays on top of the sea. Well, why is that a miracle? Well, if water didn't do that, if water was like other substances when it's cooled into its solid state and it, it drops, it would mean that it wouldn't be long before all of our bodies of water would be completely frozen and no life on earth would be possible. He's saying to Job, Job, do you understand that? How did that happen? Did you have anything to do with it? You know, you could run the world better than me, Job. And, uh, and maybe you could, you could figure out how to make that happen. He says, um, Job, do you have the power to tie up the constellations and move them around at will? I love, um, I love the way that the um, New Living Translation translates that part. And by the way, if you have time, it's great to read th- this section, the, the way that the Lord speaks, the beautiful poetry of the the way that these words are put together. It's just uh, glorious, especially in relation to how all the other speakers of the book speaks. it It is a beautiful, beautiful picture. But the New Living Translation, it it does this very, very well. Um, 38, 31 to 33, if we could um, have that. He says, can you direct the movement of the stars binding the cluster of the Pleiades or loosening the cords of the Orion? Can you direct the constellations through the seasons or guide the bear with her cubs across the heavens? Do you know the laws of the universe? Can you use them to regulate the earth? Job, if you are so smart, then um, can you show us your power and how you can do those things? And your wisdom, can you show how it could be done better? He goes on with his questions. He says, Job, our clouds... Rain and thunderbolts available at your beck and call. And then he goes into the, the world of animals. So he, he moves from places Job can't go, from the deepest recesses of the sea, 
uh, and then he to to the to, from to space, and then he moves to the things that Job can observe, m- meteorological things that take place, rain, hail, these kinds of things, and then he moves closer still. Uh, to the animal kingdom, and and he mentions a whole list of animals, and and all of them are wild except one. He said, Job, do you feed wild animals when they're hungry? Now, Job had thousands of domesticated animals. He took care of those, but but no, Job didn't feed wild animals. Uh, Job, what does the ibex now, it's, it's, uh, if you read it, it says mountain goat, but he's talking about the ibex. You ever, anybody know what the ibex is, the Nubian ibex? This is an amazing creature. That's, that's, what it, that's a picture of one. They can, they can climb walls straight up like that that are, that are hundreds of feet. The sides of dams, uh, the sides, sheer face of mountains. And, um, and, and that's a picture of one. And, and uh, the amazing thing about the ibex is that, that, that they are born and then they, it isn't very long before they're following their mother up and down the sides of scaling cliffs and all kinds of crazy things and, and, and amazing balance. He says, Job, what does the ibex or the mountain goat owe you for their keen survival skills? What did you have to do with that? Says, Job... Um, do you, do you think you can tame the wild donkey or the auric? That's the wild ox that's mentioned there. The auric is a, is a beast. The auric is a beast. The, they don't exist anymore. The last one died out in Poland in 1627. And uh, the auric is, 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 a, is a mighty beast. That is a six-foot man that's standing next to what an auric would have been. At its shoulders, it was six feet tall. A powerful creature with sharp horns facing forward, and they were the most fearsome beasts of the ancient world. In fact, um, uh, of all who have animals, they were the third largest in the world. Behind elephant and a hippopotamus, you had the, you had the auric. And, uh, and he says, you know, uh, when it comes to the auric, do you think you can tame it? I mean, think about all the power and the strength of a of an orc, if you could just hitch it to your plow and, 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 and have it take care of all the work in your fields, you could do it in no time, right, Job? But Job could never tame an orc. They were fierce, they were ferocious beasts, and they were powerful, and so people left them alone. He goes on, he said, Job, can you explain the odd behavior of the ostrich? Now, um, one of the things the Lord talks about here is that the ostrich is a terrible mother. <laughs> so if you, if you go and read it, it talks about how the ostrich is a terrible mother. And, and even like some liberal commentators are very offended that the Lord would say this about ostriches. So uh, I decided that I would go back and research ostriches and, and their, their mothering and so on and so forth this week. Because I don't know anything about ostriches. I know very little about animal, the animal world in general. So... Uh, I went online and I, you know, I typed in on YouTube, you know, um, ostrich mothering, you know, and uh, you know what I discovered? They're terrible mothers. Um, uh, there, there's there's one, uh, one, one thing that they do, you know, so the way ostriches work, you have one male ostrich and, and the male ostrich has actually a harem of ostriches, uh, of female ostriches, and then the, then the favorite one is called the hen. And the hen decides when it's time to lay eggs where the legs, eggs are going to be placed. 
And so the, the um, hen lays her eggs first, then the other female ostrich, ostriches lay her eggs also in the same area, and then the hen lays on the eggs. But that hen does something very interesting. It takes its own eggs and puts them in the middle of all the eggs, pushes the other mother's eggs on the outside, and whenever there's a predator wanting to come and eat the ostrich egg, you know what that mother does? She takes, takes her beak and pushes out one of the eggs from one of the other mothers and lets it take that and doesn't defend the egg, just gives them the egg. So everything the Lord's saying here is absolutely true. So um, the next time you, you watch um, the History Channel and they criticize the Lord, just remember the Lord's always right. The Lord's always right. So, um, so th- th- this is, this is uh, and here's one other thing. So, about the ostrich. He said, can you explain the odd behavior of the ostrich? Can you explain the foolishness of the ostrich? It is a large 300-pound bird with a tiny brain, right? Well, think about, think about Job for a second. God says, you know, I can, I can make a foolish bird, can't I? Just like I made a foolish person, Job, like you. If, if I have the right to make a foolish person, don't I have the right to make a foolish bird? Or we could say that vice versa. Um, here we have, he says, he continues, Job, did you give the war horse the power, strength, and discipline to go into battle, Job? Does that horse owe that to you? Or finally, Job, does the hawk owe its ability to soar, the eagle to build its towering nest? to you. We have this picture of the Lord challenging Job. Job says, Lord, you're not doing a good job running my life. I could do a better job than you can do. God says, Job, if you could do a better job than me, then take a look at the world. Do you think you could have done a better job than I've done in ordering the world? And the obvious answer is, no. The obvious answer is no. And so the Lord sums it all up in chapter 40, verse 2. He says, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. So now the Lord has spoken, and it's time for Job to respond to what God has said. Now, what he does is very interesting. He says in in verses 4 and 5, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will will proceed no further. And what does he mean by that? Job says, I've made my case already. I've made it over and over again. I'm not going to say anything else. I'm going to put my hand over my mouth. Now, Job's answer is very interesting. You know, you would think that Once God made his case, or once God began to make his case, Job would have acquiesced. Yes, oh God, you you understand the world better than I do. You understand my life better than I do. But the reality is, is that Job never comes to a place of repentance here. Now God's going to speak again, and Job will come to a place of repentance, but he hasn't come yet. Uh, Francis Anderson, he puts it this way. He said this, He said the gesture of placing the hand over the mouth could be a mark of respect or a sign of silence. 
Job admits that he cannot answer, but he still does not admit any sin, so there is no confession. Nor does he retract any of his former statements, so there is no submission. On the contrary, he seems to be sticking to his guns. Here God has come, here God has showed up, here God has made his case. Job has no response to make, but one thing Job doesn't do is Job doesn't come to a place where he confesses his sin, acknowledges the fact that he doesn't have the wisdom that he thinks he has, and submits to God's will. Now, um, it's important that we remember as we think about this, this story, why did, God, why did God do this? Why did God come to Job? Why did God honor Job's request? It's for one important reason. God wants Job to know that he isn't his enemy. God wants us to know that he isn't our enemy. God isn't your enemy. In fact, um, as we think about it, there there are three applications that we can make from this. Number one, since God isn't our enemy, we must watch our attitude when life doesn't go according to plan. This is, this is exactly the place where Job began to fall on the wrong side of things. Now, Job never curses God, right, to his face. Job never comes to a place that Satan claimed he would. In that sense, Job, Job has passed the, the test, if you will. Job has a relationship with God. Job knows him. Everything was taken away, but Job still wanted to be with God. Job still wanted to have a relationship with God. But on the other hand, we can see how the pressures, the struggles, the trials of life mounted up on Job to the point where he began to feel self-righteous in the face of God, and he began to assume things about God that weren't true. And when he assumed things about God that wasn't true, it put him on the wrong track in terms of his understanding of who God is. The reality is is that our assumptions, the assumptions that we make, can be dangerous. Now, let's just uh, illustrate this in a practical way. Have you ever felt slighted by someone? There, there are two reactions that we can, we, can, we can make when we feel slighted by another person. The first thing we can do is we can become mad about it. I've gotten mad when I felt slighted. Anybody else? Okay, just a couple of us have, have gotten slighted enough where we got, we got mad about it. And maybe brood about it for a couple of days. Ever have that happen to you? It's happened to me. Dozens and dozens of times. First thing we can do when we feel slighted is, is to, to um, take, it, take it to heart, to allow ourselves to brood over it, to become angry about it, to maybe allow it to affect our relationship with that other person. Now, let's ask another question. Have you ever been, felt like you were slighted by another person and then you found out later that you really weren't? Dozens of times. Found out later that that person had no intention to slight me. In fact, it wasn't much longer that they, they saw me and were so happy. And I thought that they were doing something or offended or they're trying, they, they didn't like me or whatever it was. 
That's one reaction. How, how terrible is that? We feel slighted and then we go and we mope about it for a long time and then none of it's true. How about this? How about we assume the best when we feel slighted? How about if we assume that the person didn't slight us? How about if we assume that the person didn't mean to do that? Even if they did mean to slight us, we still win. We don't have to mope around for several days. And maybe if we don't take it personally, when we see them the next time, we can rebuild whatever it was that crumbled and not even know that there was a problem. Right? It's much healthier to assume the best about other people than to assume the worst about other people. Well, so it goes in our relationship with God. It is always true in our relationship with God because what God always wants for us is what is best for us. And we have such a tendency in our lives when things seem to be going wrong, when things aren't turning out the way that we want it to turn out, we become angry at God and we become like Job, not understanding that there are things going on that we have no understanding of. And so the most important thing we can do in our life is to trust that he is good. And we need to watch our attitude when things don't go according to plan. That leads us to our second point. Number two, since God isn't our enemy, we must trust that he knows better than we do. We need to trust that he knows better than we do. John Walton puts it this way. Notice this. Um, he's an Old Testament scholar. He said, the book of Job encourages us to avoid the easy reductionism that makes God accountable to how we think the world ought to operate. His wisdom extends far beyond our short-sightedness. There is always more afoot than we can imagine. Our ideas of how things ought to work will always be naive and simplistic. God asks that we trust him. We have this omnipotent, holy, mighty, righteous Good God who sustains the universe. He allows evil into the world. Why does he allow evil? Because if he were to eradicate all evil, if he were to eradicate all the consequences of evil, guess what he would have to do? He would have to eradicate us. That's exactly what happened before the flood. God was sorry that he'd made human beings, and so therefore he decided to wipe out the human race, but there was one righteous man. So God started over with that one righteous man. And what did he do? He made a promise. There's a rainbow. And the promise of the rainbow is that God will never wipe out the world in that same manner again. And so that when we look at a rainbow after a storm, it's a reminder of the fact that God allows wickedness to continue in the world. It, it reminds us that God allows disease to continue in the world so that he can save those who belong to him. But one day, God will bring all things to account. He will bring, he will reckon all things. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off on that one point for a moment because that's our next point of application. But we live in a world where, um, we live in a world where uh, we feel very smart, very intelligent, right? At your fingertips, you can get information on anything. If you want to know about the Forefathers Monument in Plymouth, well, you can just go online and type it in. Uh, if you want to know uh, the latest on Toby Mac and what's going on in his life, uh, you, can, you can go online and you can find that too. If you want to find out about the Red Sox and what's happening with the Red Sox, uh, you can turn on television. You can, you, can, you, can, you can have all of that information at your, at your fingertips. And so sometimes we feel like we are awfully smart. 
Job felt like he was awfully smart. He felt like he was awfully intelligent. Those three friends, they represented the great wisdom traditions of the ancient world. Elihu probably represented the wisdom tradition of Israel. And what God is doing in this book is he's correcting all of them. As we read in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, it says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God calls us to simply trust him. Now, isn't that great? When, when you have, maybe when you were raised, I hope you had loving parents when you were raised. For those of us who had loving parents when we were raised, um, it, there were certain decisions that often our parents would make, right? And we didn't understand those decisions. But we went along with those decisions. Why? Because we trusted them. Because we knew that they had our best interest in mind. And so even when we didn't understand things, we were able to trust. Well, our parents all make mistakes, But you have a loving heavenly father who never makes a mistake. And so when we're dealing with all of the losses, all of the trials, all of the struggles, all of the diseases that this world has to offer, all of the the terrible things that erupt in this world, one thing we can do as God's people is we can simply trust him because he is good and he loves us. And then we notice the third application. God isn't our enemy. He is our judge, and one day he will call us to account. God isn't our enemy. He is our judge, and one day he will call us to account. I mentioned on a number of occasions, there's a very famous theologian, and he said that his whole perspective on the world changed on the day that he realized that it wasn't him who had God in the microscope, but it was God who had him in the microscope. And I think that Job is now in that section of his life, and Job will come to a place of repentance, but Job is now realizing that. He is the one in the microscope, not the other way around. You know, um, there are lots of wrestling matches that Job had to deal with. He had a wrestling match with an invisible competitor. He had a wrestling match with his wife. And he prevailed. And with the invisible competitor, he prevailed. And he had three friends that he had a wrestling match with, and he prevailed. And he had a wrestling match with the Lord. He didn't prevail on that one. But there's one more wrestling match that Job has to have. It's a wrestling match that every one of us have to have. And that was a wrestling match with himself. He had to come to the place where he was willing to submit to God's authority in his life, to submit to God's leadership in his life, to turn from his sinfulness, to turn from the attitudes that he had harbored, to turn from the conclusions that he had made, to turn from the assumptions that he had made about God and turn away from all of that and turn to him in faith and trust him that he was a faithful and good God. You see, we see the ultimate expression of God's love and justice in his son Jesus. Job couldn't understand it. He felt like all of this was unjust. But little did he know that one day, and he did have some glimmer. He had some inkling. 
He said, my redeemer lives. He, he, he did have a, a, an inkling of this, but he didn't understand it in the way that we, we do. That one day God would send his own son to be the just sacrifice to pay for our just debt before him. A debt that we could not pay. And his perfect justice would be satisfied in his son. That the one who would suffer the greatest injustice of all would be the perfect one. The spotless, spotless lamb of God who took upon himself our sins so that through faith in him we might live. And so he offers out to you this opportunity to live, this opportunity to be free of all the bitterness and anger that maybe you have inside. Maybe it's anger and bitterness toward God. He wants you to know that he is not your enemy. He is the one who loves you. He cares for you. And he, and he desires to have a relationship with you. He desires to transform you from the inside out. He desires you to experience the peace that transcends all understanding. And that peace and joy can only come through him and through his son. See, God is just. And his justice knows no bounds. And it's beyond our understanding. Because it is, it is held in perfect balance with his love and his mercy. Of which we are the beneficiaries. Turn to Christ and live and experience a life that you could never find anywhere else. Let's pray.